A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Basha Cummings, and you're listening to The Slow Newscast. Now, we thought a lot of people probably thought so too, that the Russians were masters of the information war. Look at 2015 and 2016, look at the troll farms and bots and the slickness of the state media disinformation machine. And so when Russia launched its horrifying invasion of Ukraine, we assumed that this dominance would continue and that they would control the narrative online. But it's just not turning out that way. Via the remarkable story of Snake Island, a moment that became totemic of the Ukrainian resistance, my colleague Alexei Mostras, our investigations editor, and reporters Patricia Clark and Luke Bedemer try to answer the question of why. Why and how are Russia losing the information war? This is a Russian warship issuing a warning. The Russian naval officer is saying, This is Russian military warship. I suggest you lay down your weapons and surrender to avoid bloodshed and unnecessary casualties. Otherwise, you will be bombed. The warship is just off the coast of a small island in the Black Sea. If you can picture a map of Ukraine, it's down the bottom, the only sea that Ukraine has access to. The island has a Ukrainian name, but I'll call it by the name everyone knows it by, Snake Island. It's called an island, but really it's more of a rocky outcrop, desolate, windswept, with a tiny village of fewer than 30 people. And living among them are 13 Ukrainian soldiers, stationed there as border guards. The warning from the Russian Navy is directed to them, the soldiers. It's clear and unequivocal. So too is the Ukrainian response. The actual words matter in this story. Because the words of one soldier on a small rocky island in the Black Sea have become a slogan one that's been scrawled on buildings and written on signposts, one that's become a rallying cry. What the soldier says is, Russian battleship, go fuck yourself. That's quite brave, right? Facing down a warship and telling it to go fuck itself. A heroic up yours to the invaders before being blown to smithereens. The events of Snake Island were quickly adopted as a symbol of Ukrainian courage in the face of overwhelming odds. 
the soldiers' defiance became a key piece of propaganda in the fight against Russia and was reported by almost every major media outlet on Earth. But one of the most surprising things about Snake Island is that the rest of the world might not have noticed if it weren't for a Ukrainian musician called Andrei. Andrei was one of the first people to put a video of the incident on social media, maybe even the very first to post an English translation. Snake Island didn't go viral because of a government spin doctor or a professional PR firm. It went viral at least partly because of a citizen. Andrei is one of thousands of ordinary Ukrainians fighting an information war against Russia, a battle for ideas and for truth. On the one side, there are Russian bots, troll farms, state media channels, and Putin sympathizers in the Western media. On the other are people like Andrei, ordinary people, students, musicians, computer programmers, all bound together by the collective aim of fighting Russian disinformation, keeping up morale, and making sure Ukraine's plight is being heard around the world. And you know what? Every expert we've spoken to thinks they're winning. I'm Alexi Mostris, and in this week's Slow Newscast, I'm looking at the information war in Ukraine. I appreciate that you contacted me, and uh, I was just in time because we just got out of this shelter. We got a siren half hour ago, made it just right in time, mint to mint. If you'd asked Andrei Vasilenko just two weeks ago what he did, he'd have told you... I was a musician. But now? Now I'm basically a reporter, because that's my mission now. Andrei sees himself as being on the front line of an information war. My first video, I did not plan it. But the first video I shot and uploaded was February 24th, when we heard the siren, the air raid alert for the first time in Kyiv. I captured it and I said, hear it, it's happening. When we speak to him, he's in Lviv, in the west of Ukraine. But at the time of the Snake Island attack, he was still in Kyiv with his wife and children. Bags packed, ready to flee. It was about midnight, February 24th and 25th. My family were asleep, but I was on the news. And our Ukrainian TV streamed it, and they had this live, this piece of audio of the radio talk. I heard it, probably one of the first in the world, maybe, because Ukrainians got the first. I heard what our heroes said and responded. And, well, I had a bit of a laugh, because I knew it was... It was very courageous, but um, it boosted my morale and mood. And then they said that they are probably killed. And it was devastating to me. The altercation between the Russian warships and the soldiers on Snake Island had been broadcast on state television. Pravda, a Ukrainian newspaper, had put a clip of it online. But neither had an English translation. The moment I heard it live on TV, I strolled it back. I captured the audio on my phone. I downloaded it on my laptop. It was already packed, ready to go, but I took it out of my bag. Because I knew I had to make a video about it, translate it to the world. I just made a translation. A bit rough, I know, but uh, the point was clear. What was going on there? And I uploaded it about 2 o'clock in the morning. 
It didn't take long before the video became a hit. And uh, I woke up, it got over 100,000 views. I understood that I was one of, one of the first, if not the first, to make the English version of it. And I knew, if anything, I've done my job to spread awareness. Because there was something that I knew people would pick up. People heard the courage there. And it was such a bittersweet, and they spread it. It helps when uh, it's like a meme. I feel uncomfortable looking at events like Snake Island through the prism of internet culture. Whether or not something's a meme seems unimportant, at least on one level. But Andre, on the ground in Kyiv, could think differently. And he recognised that what he'd just seen on state TV was a properly viral bit of content, and it took off like one. Other YouTube channels quickly reposted his video, and soon all the world's major news outlets had followed up. President Zelensky, who had already proved himself to be a brilliant communicator, recognised the power of Snake Island immediately. He released a video promising to honour the fallen soldiers and to award each of them the posthumous title Hero of Ukraine. And as the views racked up, it was clear that Andre had helped Ukraine score a major victory in the information war. And what became obvious was that Snake Island was far from the only example. The Ukrainians are used to dealing with Russia and they're used to having to compete with them in the information space. One of the things that's very interesting about Ukraine and the Ukrainians more generally is their use of comedy and meme and the fact that they sort of pour scorn and they poke fun at the Russians. Russia and Ukraine have been fighting an information war for years. When Putin annexed Crimea in 2014, Moscow took Ukrainian TV off the air and replaced it with Russian broadcasts. They painted the Ukrainians as fascists who were taking money from bogeymen like George Soros. And today, Russia is using the same playbook. It's accused Ukraine of plotting a genocide against ethnic Russians, of bombing a kindergarten, of harbouring neo-Nazis and thugs. I'll come back to how effective Russia's tactics have been later. But most experts we spoke to agree that Ukraine has been remarkably effective in promoting its own counter-narrative. And even, you know, very close to the to the conflict beginning, Ukraine was posting memes about, you know, different types of headache, and the, the sort of biggest one was having Russia as a neighbour. But humour has played a part throughout that, that sort of information battle, and it continues to now, albeit in a much darker way. Jack Pearson spent nearly five years working at the UK Foreign Office on digital diplomacy. And when he mentions the Ukrainian use of humour, he's talking about stories like the Panther of Kharkiv. If you haven't seen this one, it's really good. It's about a Ukrainian tabby cat called Mikhail, who single-handedly exposed the location of dozens of Russian snipers. I mean, it's almost certainly not true, but it's funny, and it's human, and it's shareable. After all, on the internet, everyone loves cats. But humour is just one part of Ukraine's success. The fact they've been so strategic in what they've done and the tempo and scale of what they've done in the circumstances has been very impressive. There's a very serious meaning, but there's also some of this slightly more uh, comedic content, which is dark and it reflects a gallows humour, but it also reflects a stoicism. You know, we've seen examples of you know, Russian tanks being pulled out of fields by tractors. We've seen road signs being edited to say they point to the Hague. 
I think even recently following the, the Snake Island incident, people writing on road signs, Russian tanks, go fuck yourself. Russian trains, go fuck yourself. You know, it's become a sort of motto that the, the, the interaction between things that happen in the real world and are happening in the real world and online culture are kind of blurring and amplifying each other. It hits the sort of sweet spot of, you know, internet culture as well and makes it more shareable. And that's where I think they've been quite clever. Now, it's important to say, when Jack mentions words like strategy and Ukraine being clever, I don't think that he's implying that the country has some sort of big central PR plan, deciding which stories should be promoted and which shouldn't be. Frankly, Ukrainians have more important things to worry about than social media tactics. But if you look at the stories that have broken through, they do have a few things in common. We've mentioned humour, but other stories that gain a lot of traction typically involve stories of individual heroism and martyrdom, or stories that mock the Russian invaders, or ones that show Russian brutality. And maybe such stories emerge in every war. But now that everyone has a mobile phone, more of this grassroots material is finding its way online, and it seems to be having a real effect. Take the Sunflower Seeds video. You're hearing a Ukrainian woman shouting at two Russian soldiers, asking why they're in her country. As she walks away, she says, you should put sunflower seeds in your pockets so that they will grow on Ukrainian land after you die. As with the Snake Island recording, it was an ordinary citizen who first posted the sunflower video, another foot soldier in the information war. And I didn't know this before, but the sunflower is Ukraine's national flower. It represents power, strength and warmth. So it makes sense to me that, like the Snake Island story, the sunflower story has grown into something bigger, a symbol of Ukraine's resistance. And that impulse to record, document and share, to control your own narrative, is felt by Ukrainians outside the country too. My name is Marta Vasuta. I'm 20 years old. I'm a Ukrainian girl who was born in London but raised in Ukraine in a very beautiful, small town called Drogovich. Marta's in London right now, unable to go home. And her TikTok videos until really recently were pretty standard for a 20-year-old having fun in a big city. Lip-syncing, messing around. There was a recent one she posted about Storm Eunice, which featured the character Shrek. It was all a bit random for anyone over the age of 30, but pretty standard for TikTok and Marta shared it with her 400 followers. But the next day, Marta posts a very different video. It's called Ukraine Right Now, and so far it's got more than 30 million views. When Putin invaded Ukraine, Marta stopped posting videos of lip-syncing and started posting videos of her homeland. So over the next week, she uploads videos of explosions, tanks, and missiles lighting up the sky over Ukraine, all set to pop music, and the views tick up and up. Millions tune in to watch. There's one of bombs falling over Kyiv that's been viewed over 50 million times. When I first posted, I didn't have no clue it's going to be so popular. And after that, when I realized I have a platform, I actually have a platform, I can help people with that, I can understand, and I can help my country. And do you, do you 
get the sense that you're not alone in that war, that you're part of a wider movement that's, that's helping fight the information war. When I got blocked on TikTok for posting violent content a few days ago, so many people started to message me, to write comments, to write, message me on Instagram that they want me to continue posting because some of them thought I just didn't want to post. So some people believed me more in the news channel because I am the same person as they are. I'm just a 20-year-old student, as most of TikTok users are. So that make easier for them to trust me. Marta's account has become one of the most important ways that young people have accessed news about Ukraine. In fact, TikTok as a whole has had a huge effect, with videos tagged Ukraine seen 20 billion times. And part of the reason for TikTok's popularity is that it's so easy to use. In a conflict, it's given people like Marta the ability to become a media outlet. You know, political cartoons in past wars propaganda videos, all these things have sort of existed. And what I can't tell is whether what we're seeing now is that it's just being democratised. More people can take part in the information warfare on behalf of their country. You know, TikTok puts editing tools in the hands of millions of people. You know, is it a case of people seeing it as their national duty to support these things? Because that's one way of, of representing your nation. It's important to say Ukraine's success in controlling their own narrative isn't just down to grassroots support. The US and the UK did something even before the invasion that all the experts I spoke to agreed had a big effect. Because the Biden administration was very successful at declassifying intelligence early on about what the Russians were planning to do. They were calling out what Russia was going to do ahead of time. It's very unusual to declassify your intelligence assessment and to very publicly call out a foreign actor in that way. I'm very used to Russia being on the offensive and the West always being on the defensive of it. And the opposite happened here, where suddenly the message, he's going to invade, he's, he's going to invade, was coming from Washington. And it was very obvious that it was part of a very thought-through strategy. What they're all referring to is known as pre-bunking. Or, to use Jack's more impressive description, preemptive attribution or first strike communications. It's about getting on the front foot in the information war, trying to discredit Putin's arguments before he's even made them. In the past, Western intelligence services would have kept their reports on Russia's military moves secret. But this time, that changed. Way back in November, the White House publicly warned European allies about a possible invasion of Ukraine. In December, the Washington Post published intelligence documents showing satellite photos of Russia's military build-up. In January, British intelligence agencies went on record to suggest an invasion was likely. The Pentagon was even more specific. It said that Russia was planning to publish a very graphic fake video to create a false pretext for war. After several years of being outflanked by Russia's misinformation machine, it seemed like the US and the UK were finally fighting an information war on their own terms. The Russians have really been very slow in pushing back on any of that. Uh, their own narratives have not been effective, and they've really lagged behind significantly in terms of confronting the, the Ukrainian information operations. This is Dmitry Alperovich, 
chairman of Silverado, a geopolitical think tank, and the former CTO and founder of the cybersecurity firm CrowdStrike. You know, one of the prerequisites for a successful information operations campaign is having at least a kernel of truth that you can then expand upon, you can manipulate, you can present in a different light. And the problem that they've had in Ukraine is that they went into this invasion really with no pretext. Uh, no pretext, at least, that anyone took seriously. And then there's Zelensky himself. The former comedian turned Ukrainian wartime president is pretty magnetic. His pieces to camera from the streets of Kyiv, shoulder to shoulder with his own soldiers, contrast exquisitely with Putin's own image, isolated at one end of a very long table, with his cowed generals silently grimacing at the other. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. But you have to ask, does any of this matter? Putin may be losing the information war online, but he knows that at home, the majority of Russians get their news from TV. And Russian TV is pretty much in lockstep with Putin's propaganda machine. On stations like Russia One, Putin is only carrying out a special military exercise, a limited campaign designed to rid Ukraine of neo-fascists. And that kind of propaganda, to a large number of people, works. A lot of what they say on TV, it's truth. It's true. How do you know? Well, you know, when I, when I read in, in a foreign newspaper uh, that, you know, Russians bomb uh, Kharkov and they and so on, so I know that it's not true because uh, they promise not to do this and they will never do this. The story of Ukraine's information war is partly a story about a generational divide, about different messages reaching different audiences. Younger Russians getting their news from mobile phones, maybe even following the Russian influencers who've condemned the war on social media, but most older Russians still getting their news from TV. So, in this information war, to an extent at least, each side is simply playing to its own base. Ukrainians focusing on the West and keeping up morale within its own borders, Russian media targeting Russians at home. Andre, the musician behind the Snake Island video, has seen the effects of Russian domestic propaganda up close. Because I have one episode which broke my heart. My uncle, he called my mom in Ukraine and said, why are you killing Russians? He's been watching Russian uh, television mostly exclusively all the 30 years 
He has been living there. He does not accept anything else. So you see that even living outside Russia, but by watching Russian TV and living in your own bubble, it's enough to brainwash you completely. My own uncle, also Andrei, my mom named me after him. So you see how deep it goes. And uh, now imagine in Russia, the level of brainwashing in Russia. I have no compassion now to the Russian nation. They now have to think for themselves. They didn't see that coming, but they must have. And now they just pay the price. And we just defending our country. Putin may well feel that winning the information war outside Russia is unlikely. But that doesn't mean that he's given up. Take Vladimir Bondarenko. He's a blogger from Kyiv who's written dozens of articles critical of Ukraine. Vladimir used to be an aviation engineer until he took up blogging when he lost his job. Except Vladimir doesn't exist. He's AI-generated, as is another blogger, a friend of his, a woman called Irina. Analysts working for Facebook uncovered the scam last week. They told NBC News that Vladimir and Irina were part of a larger propaganda effort by Russia, and that it all linked to a guy called Alexander Malkovich. Malkovich was involved in the St. Petersburg troll farm that tried to influence the 2016 US election. And now it seems he's turned his sights to Ukraine. But here's the thing. It feels like the world has moved on since 2016 and troll farms and fake accounts. We've become more internet savvy, less likely to accept a tweet or a Facebook post at face value. And maybe that's a weird silver lining of the infodemic of misinformation of the past few years. That people are less likely to fall for fake Vladimir or fake arena, and more likely to respond instead to true stories about real people and images of sniper hunting cats. Certainly Jack Pearson feels that something's shifted in the way that Russia interacts with the West. Online, Moscow seems to have lost some of its swagger. I think you could even look at the social media accounts, the official social media accounts of their embassies around the world. They're nowhere near as active as they have been before, I don't think. They don't have the usual panache that the Russians have sort of prided themselves on, or the assertiveness or the confidence, I think, that they sometimes have. It qualitatively feels less and kind of less forceful. I think that in and of itself is quite telling. Any information war is about controlling the narrative, but it's also about stopping your opponent controlling theirs. And that's where Ukraine's cyber army comes in. On the evening of February 26th, Ukraine's Deputy Prime Minister, Mikhailo Fedorov, called on Ukrainian developers, cyber specialists, designers and marketers to come together to fight Russia in cyberspace. So far, about 200,000 people have signed up. Uh, I started because uh, I want to help somehow. Take Alexei, for instance. Before the war, he was a computer science teacher, but now he's part of his country's cyber army. I found the Telegram channel of IT Army of Ukraine, where I can receive the concrete targets for attack. I can say uh, which website I take down personally, 
But as I know, sites like Kremlin, Russian MVD, uh, and uh, some uh, site of news is down for a few days and uh, don't show any live. I asked our reporter, Luke Bedemer, to have a look at what other kinds of cyber attacks were taking place. Well, so a lot of what seems to have been happening from the Ukrainian side are these large-scale DDoS attacks, which are when hackers organize for there to be loads and loads of automated requests to a particular website, and those requests can overwhelm the website and cause the server to temporarily shut down. A lot of the .ru websites have been targeted with this, and it looks like there's been some success in um, bringing them down and stopping other people from being able to see them. But some of the rest of it is a bit more serious, and I managed to speak to a, a hacking group called Cyber Partisans who are operating in Belarus, um, and they told me that they'd successfully uh, disabled and slowed down some of the Belarusian railway network. We just received information from uh, employees uh, saying that as of today, the Belarusian railway is just not able to ensure the safety of its infrastructure, so military uh, troops from Russian Federation didn't move at night, um, and some of the locomotive uh, crews um, became afraid uh, to even go to shifts and carry, and like move and carry trains. Which had meant that not only Russian troops, but materials and, and tanks and vehicles and things had been slowed down in getting to Ukraine, which uh, is, a, is a really significant thing. I'd seen reports that corroborated that elsewhere in the past few days. Another hacking group claimed to have been able to to get data from the Russian space agency. So there is some significant cyber intervention going on. And I think that the Ukrainians have demonstrated that their cyber potential is, is pretty significant. So that's the view from Ukraine. But what about hackers in Russia? Before the invasion, some analysts were predicting that they would unleash a cyber onslaught against Ukraine, power networks knocked out, telecommunications cut off, that sort of thing. But it didn't happen. And Dmitry Alperovich thinks it now won't. If the Russians did not use cyber operations extensively at the start of the war, and they didn't, I think they're unlikely to do so now. It's way too late. I think they're going to focus on trying to achieve their objectives in the traditional kinetic sphere. And I fear that in that sphere, life, life is going to get very, very tough for uh, the Ukrainian people. What went wrong for Putin this time around? Or is it that he just doesn't actually care? I'm just thinking about how I answer this question. What went wrong for Putin? I'm talking to Natalia Antileva. She's the co-founder and editor of Coda Story, a newsroom that focuses on global crises and disinformation. And I wanted to know why Putin seemed to be losing the information war. He miscalculated. I think what went wrong for Putin is um, the Ukrainians. That's what went wrong for Putin. You know, it's Zelensky and it's every single Ukrainian who is resisting. That's what went wrong. That was his miscalculation. What Natalia is telling me is that Ukraine isn't like anything that's happened before. Maybe maybe there is a really simple answer. Maybe because Russia's wrong and Ukraine's right in this war. Maybe it's as simple as this. That in previous conflicts, Russia had more of a chance to muddy the waters to use disinformation to suggest that there may be other ways of looking at things. But with Ukraine, it was so obvious who the villain is and who the victim is 
that the opportunities for Russia to win the information war were limited, right from the start. Her argument, and it's a powerful one, is that stories of incredible heroism and defiance were always going to emerge in such an extreme situation, and that this organic process was all it took for Ukraine to win the information war. Imagine Alexei sitting in a bomb shelter um, uh, with, you know, your cat or your dog or your six-year-old daughter with the sound of bombs around you, not knowing whether you, what, what will survive, whether you'll have a house to go back to or a country to live in. What would you do if you still had access to your phone and to social media? I bet you'd be, you know, tweeting out what was happening to you. And that's what lots and lots of people in Ukraine are doing. They're not being clever and they're not, they don't have a social media strategy. They're trying to survive. And these days, putting your story out is part of everyday life for everyone. What Natalia was telling me made total sense. Most people using social media in Ukraine aren't thinking about likes or impact. They're not engaged in an active campaign to promote a particular narrative. They're just documenting a horrific war. That was Andre's motivation when he posted the Snake Island video. The motivation of whoever recorded the Sunflower Woman video too. But there are exceptions. One of the main social media stories to emerge in the first days of the war was about a fighter pilot called the Ghost of Kyiv. This guy had apparently single-handedly shot down several Russian fighter jets. The Ukraine government shared the story on Twitter in a montage video set to thumping music. Videos of the Ghost of Kyiv racked up 10 million views on Twitter reached almost a billion Facebook followers. Except, the ghost of Kyiv is almost certainly a myth. This sort of story, promoted by Ukraine's official accounts and of questionable veracity, has more in common with state-sponsored propaganda campaigns of the past. But it's an exception. As Natalia says, most of what we're seeing online from Ukraine is coming from the people and is arguably more powerful for it. It's hard not to be uplifted by some of these videos. You feel yourself cheering the Ukrainians on. But Natalia had a warning for people like me, not to become complacent. The West has won this round of this information war, but this victory can be very, very, very short-lived if, if the slogans are empty. What kind of empty slogans do you mean? The slogan we stand with Ukraine, the feeling that you get watching what's happening is that collectively, you know, you're left with the feeling that everyone's quite pleased with themselves for being so united and standing with the Ukraine. That is not making a difference to lives of millions of Ukrainians who are being bombed by Putin right now. I mean, it is making some difference because the arms are making difference, you know, the weapons are making difference, arming them and so on. So it is. But if the Russian disinformation machine is able to show very clearly that the West is saying the West is being hypocritical and it is saying one thing, but really doing another, which is exactly what they've done in you know, every major crisis, that will really undermine whatever gains the West has made in this 
in the information war with Russia. The story of 13 soldiers on Snake Island telling a Russian warship to go fuck itself has spread around the world. Frankly, that's not surprising, because it shows defiance and bravery, and because it's funny, but tragic. In a war over information where one of the prizes is morale, that seems like a win. And yet, all was not quite what it seemed. Because around 11am last Monday, the Ukrainian Navy revealed something on Facebook. The soldiers on Snake Island hadn't been blown to smithereens. The Russians had captured them. They weren't exactly safe, but they were alive. Does that change anything, though? Maybe Andre's video wouldn't have gone viral if we'd known all along that the soldiers had lived. But I think there's a good chance that it probably would have done. After all, telling a Russian warship to go fuck itself is still a pretty extraordinary thing to do, even if it doesn't end in death. The soldiers being alive did do one thing, though. It gave the Russians a chance to strike back in the information war. A day later, a new video emerged. It was posted on YouTube by an account called I Stand With Russia. And it shows several Snake Island soldiers, or at least that's how they're presented. They buried us, one soldier tells the camera. They awarded us their medals posthumously. Our government are bad people. We were abandoned. It's hard to tell what, if anything, is true about this video. But it's obvious that Russia was trying to turn the propaganda tables on the whole Snake Island affair. But you know what? That video? It's got fewer than 2,000 views. Not exactly viral content. And I think that's important. Because Russia's information playbook in Ukraine seems to be based around destruction. Subverting a story and making you think that there's something more to it. Whereas what's really gaining traction online in Ukraine right now aren't those sort of stories. The ones gaining traction are the Snake Island sort of stories. Positive narratives about myths, legends, about bravery and sacrifice. When you defend yourself, you need to create some myths and legends to boost morale. There were two warships, yeah? Two. Uh, Moscow and... Uh, it doesn't, it's, it's not important, actually. We, it was incredibly accepted by the, uh, by the world. They, they saw that we can stand for ourselves. We have guts. Andri only names the first warship, the Moscow. But on the day the soldiers were captured, there was a second ship off Snake Island too. That was called the Vasily Biko. And a few days ago, that ship was apparently destroyed by Ukrainian rockets fired from Odessa. How do we know this? because the Ukrainian armed forces released a video of the attack. The clip ends with a soldier saying, we fucking hit them. And then the same soldier utters the now famous phrase, the rallying cry of Ukrainian resistance. Russian warship, go fuck yourself. This episode was reported by me, Alexi Mostras, 
Patricia Clark and Luke Bedimer. It was produced by Katie Gunning with sound design by Studio Klong. The editor was Jasper Corbett. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Slow Newscast, the kind of journalism that we do here at Tortoise, the slow investigative work that many of my colleagues undertake. It takes time and it needs your support. So why not become a member of our newsroom? In fact, you could be my guest. Go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and use my code BASHA50. That's B-A-S-I-A-5-0. You'll get access to more material, events, all of our other shows early and ad-free, and you'll have a seat at the table to shape the stories that we tell. Thank you, and I'll see you next week. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.